everyone. It's the Lady J. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of I Never Told You What I Do for a Living. My chat for this week is with my friend Henry, who writes about the intersection of culture and technology for an online publication. But that's not the thing about Henry's story that struck me the most. Henry's attitude and self-awareness is pretty stunning, and I hope it gives everyone listening the same cause for reflection that it gave to me. Grab yourself a notebook. This one's a masterclass in gratitude. It's episode 24 of I Never Told You What I Do For A Living with Henry, the appreciator. Henry, how you doing? I'm in a good mood today. How are you doing, Jay? I'm great. It's Wednesday. We managed to get over the hump. Yeah, I mean, it's over noon of it, yes, but it's still in process, in my opinion. But whatever. It's. I am in my comfy clothes now, and that's really. Oh well, I'm in a phone booth at my office, and I have a giant window that I can see people still using spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> it's where I do all my podcasting these days. I'm in a phone booth in my office that is the most millennial thing i think i've ever heard in my entire life yep so henry i always start with the same question on this podcast which is what is your earliest childhood memory of what you wanted to be when you grew up i can't remember which came first so i'm gonna i'm gonna say them in the two in the order that i think of them the first um i was reading somebody's movie review in the new york times and i thought because I had the confidence of a dumb little kid. Um, oh, it would be great to do movie reviews in the New York Times. That seems possible. Um, and then the other instance is a story that one of my uh, aunts loves to tell. And that when I was a kid and she was babysitting, I would say I wanted to work in video games and that I wanted to work at Nintendo. And she wondered why I didn't want to start my own company. And... I didn't have a good answer for that, and I still don't, because I still don't have the entrepreneurial spark in me, but uh, I had this whole, I want to work for Nintendo vibe going on. Okay, so I- I'm sorry, I have to go back for a second. How old were you when you were reading movie reviews in the New York Times? Oh, I didn't say ages at all, because it's, it was not that it was not that young. It was like, it was, the oldest memory I have of doing that was probably nine or ten, maybe, yeah, probably ten. Okay, that makes a little more sense to me. Um, Okay, so video game person working for Nintendo or movie reviewer. So did you ever do anything with either one of those? Um, The closest thing I got to either was uh, one freelance gig during my first and second jobs out of college where I would... It was a very low-traffic but was trying to become something pop culture website they really wanted somebody to do any article about anything and i would basically be able to call my own shots of like oh i'm going to a talk tonight i could talk about this or that and um or any and like so i would be able to write pop culture articles and that was the first chance i got to do anything involving uh culture writing where i would get paid for it that was my and that was during the 2008 to 12 sort of range. So let's back up to 
a little bit younger than that first. So did you feel when you were, I guess, up until age 18, did you feel pressure from the adults in your life, whether it was someone in your family or your teachers, to make decisions about your career and then do something actively to pursue that? Up until 17, it was have a summer internship somewhere, explore. It was very nurturing. Um, my parents were always pretty much telling me to find it, pursue it, try stuff. It was very, because around 17 and 18, that's when I enrolled at Bard College out of high school. And if anybody knows the words Bard College, they know that I I must have had parents who were in, uh, not really needing me to become a lawyer or in a high paying profile anytime soon. Uh, it's a place where people go to, the cliche might be find themselves, the cliche might be in any number of things. But it was a very, I think if anything, I had internalized pressure just from society in general or my friends' friends to try to get a job as fast as possible out of college. That was, I think, no, the adults in my life were pretty, pretty decent about everything in terms of like letting me find my own way. But there was sort of an implication that after high school, you would go on to a college or university. Yeah, um, that was, I mean, part of that was when I was in middle school and the high school system in New York is really weird. But when I was in middle school, I eventually got accepted to a high school in Brooklyn Heights called Packer, which is a sort of kind of a prep school kind of, it was definitely a, it was a private school. And there was a very rigorous college. Oh, you are going to study. You are going to, we have X number of kids go to this college. Y number of kids go to that prestigious college. Um, my mom went to Brown. So I tried to get into Brown emphasis on tried. Um, <laughs> but it was, a, and so there was a very big, like you are college is a part of, it was the very much, I think things might be changing these days, but very much of the moment, oh, college is normal. You will you will college, you will university. And both of your parents went to college? They even met at graduate school at Cranbrook. Wow. Very art school. It was, the, the future of going to Bard almost seemed predetermined from the fact that my parents met at Cranbrook and then had their kid in New York State. Like it, <laughs> There's not much in terms of destiny that I actually believe in, but looking back at those like blueprints that were presented, like, yeah, no, it's, it seemed liberal arts college makes a lot of sense for what I did. And from the high school I went to, Bard didn't make the most sense, but four other kids in my graduating class also went there. So it wasn't unheard of either. Okay, so when you decided to go to Bard, did you know what you wanted to study when you got there? Or did you just think it was a good environment to try something like you said your parents were encouraging you to do? Um, a little bit of both because my first instinct because of what I, something I said earlier was, you know, I'm going to be a film major. And then I took History of Cinema 101 and found the environment to be a little, it wasn't, it was competitive in a very much intellectual elitist kind of like hyper judgmental kind of way. And I didn't enter Bard with the knowledge of the fine art cinema world that some other people did. I hadn't, I didn't like the same directors. Um, I sort of cringe about it now, but back then, um, one of the first friends I made at Bard I made them after I asked the one question, who's your favorite film director? 
and he said Kevin Smith, and I knew that in that moment. Okay, yeah, we're friends now. Um, <laughs> I look back at that going, ugh. But no, the the third act of chasing Amy does not reflect upon my personality. But um, the thing is, is that Bard was a place where, at first, I was going to go for that, and then when filmed that department didn't really click with me, I found myself in the college newspaper offices and I made my friends in that sort of social circle. And that became where I did pretty much everything. Um, we were, it was also because we didn't really, we could have produced the paper a hell of a lot better. Um, so the thing was, is that um, we spent every other weekend in that basement producing and writing and just hanging out. And that was, I think the, I mean, I did high school newspaper and I didn't do the newspaper in high school, but like that was, it was more of a little passing thing in high school. And in college, it was almost lifestyle level. It was, this was my social circle. These are the people I drank with. These are the people I'd make mistakes with. These are the people I'd argue with. And that basement of that dingy dorm building that I lived in for two years was where the newspaper office was. So it became a second room practically for some of us. So what did you end up graduating with a degree in lit major because that's a valuable thing that you can get a job with um yeah no i just i i knew it wasn't I, there wasn't a journalism major at bard but i was writing more because of the newspaper and i was sort of I, was, I started editing at a certain point um i was um uh, and I, I had a column that was a precursor to what I do now, where I was talking about the intersection of writing and uh, the intersection of technology and culture. So, and that was, I think I was writing out headphones and leaked albums, that Fiona Apple album that came out originally with the John Bryan production that was leaked. And then the studio released a much worse version. Um, and then, so, but that place was where I sort of found what I wanted to do. And then, I was like, I was writing so much and there was no real journalism department. So lit major was the thing that made the most sense because those were the professors that I got along with the most at Bard. Um, one of whom I still keep track of their stuff to date. Um, he's writing on a Spider-Man comic soon, I think. Um, and that, that was the professor that actually talked in class about how the kids he played on Xbox online with were racist jerks. Like that was a, the professors there were like in that department at least were more or less they made me comfortable to fail because that's what writing was and still is sometimes for me. And um, it's, that's why I sort of love, and that's why I sort of fell in love with just attacking a blank screen and filling it with things that will be mercilessly dissected later. Did you feel like you had a clear trajectory as you were leaving college on what you wanted to have happen next? Not at all. Um, mostly because the people who I knew from college connections to the industry, they didn't or didn't. It wasn't like the right moment because um, I graduated from college. I went. I started in '02 and I graduated in '06, which meant I was on the precursor side of the cri uh, the financial crisis bubble. And then um, when I got out of college, I was just like I, I looked at the market where it was. I looked not the market market, but I looked at like the job market. I was like trying to find something, and I didn't see the jobs or nowhere to look particularly. And I just felt my own pressure to get a job and try to rush myself out of my parents' apartment as fast as possible. And then it turned out that the best way to get a job turned out to be the nearest because my uncle was in the, a senior um, 
ranking executive or senior leadership position at a book publisher. And I was sort of ashamed of the nepotism angle here. So I sort of hid that fact from everybody there. But I got an interview with somebody. And then many uh, a while later, they found out how I got that interview. And I was just like, I don't I wanted to earn everything on my own merit. I was really concerned about like being the seen as the brat or something. So I got a job at a book publisher as an editorial assistant working on weird books about 60s architecture or fashion or all sorts of things. And then calendars later, that was my first job job. And it was it, pay, it paid and I was able to move out. And then it, the weird moment was like I knew as I was doing it, why am I doing something that I'm not going to be permanently like I could be permanently doing this, but it doesn't. I started to feel the whole, why did I go to BARD if I'm not going to be pursuing a creative or something near to my creative mind after BARD? Because if I'm going to just take a job for a paycheck and it's a cool place, it didn't really make sense that I'd be doing that in an industry that just felt adjacent to the creativity that I wanted to be doing. Like editing and like helping produce books that I wasn't really um, emotionally connected to never made sense to me when I was there. This is something we've never, I don't think I've ever actually asked anybody about this directly on the podcast, but you've sort of made me think of it now. At that point, do you think you were aware of an expectation that there should be a natural progression to your movement through a job, that you should go in at an entry level and then sort of like climb the ladder up and learn new things and be promoted and is that maybe where that feeling came from that like if I don't want to climb the ladder here what am I doing here it was a very big part of it because I saw people in senior to me positions I thought what would it like to be doing their job like why would and just nothing ever seemed that great about that but at the same time the other problem with this job was I was full-time freelance which means no benefits which was something that was annoying on a couple levels, mostly because of how um, costly my taxes were at the end of every year. Because when you're full-time freelance, nothing's taken out of your paychecks up front. And that first year, I was like, oh, I should have saved money. And it was really this sort of rude awakening moment that I thought maybe, maybe I should be thinking about my career path in a more proactive sense. I need to think about like a little bit down the road and, I was also just sort of unhappy. And that's why one of my colleagues asked me one morning, so how are you doing? And then I sort of didn't have an answer or I didn't have a great answer because she then said, what do you think about working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art? Which is a really weird question to ask me because I'm pretty sure I, so I showed no signs of being a fine arts person either. Like, I'm, I, but at the time I thought that's a really good resume notch. That was the phrase I used, and it was very sort of, oh, you're going to have these interesting places on your resume, and you're going to be a, a a person of intellect and whatever. So, like, I said, I'm interested. I'm listening. And then before I knew it, um, I was interviewing, and I was working in the Department of Printed Product at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, coming up with and developing the ideas that become stationary post like postcards and envelopes and boxes of stationery and posters and all the other paper things that were sold that used um, images and concepts from the art and special exhibitions at the Met. 
Okay, so I don't know if anybody's ever said this to you, but that's really fucking cool. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. I didn't know that was someone's job, but obviously it would have to be. I don't know if it is anymore, because uh, that division may not ex exist in what it was. Uh, the reason why I left was, um, well, I'll, it's a sort of jumping ahead, but one day we were t we sort of could tell that the business wasn't doing that good. And um, I'm not sure who was killing the business with this, but at one day we were told... Um, Wednesday is the last day of this division and it was a Monday and uh, 21 of us were brought into a room that day I refer to it as the red wedding of uh, firings because it was like a weird bunch of us in that like people in all sorts of different stages in their career but up until then it was the coolest job that I'd ever had partly because I felt the professional need to wear a suit and tie to work every day which is the exact polar opposite of how I come to you today wearing black jeans sneakers and a timothy thatcher shirt like it's i am the exact opposite of who i was back then to many degrees but also because in that job i once was in an elevator with anna wintour oh. and i was like and i was like what is going on right now what is my i barely even know about i know enough about this person to know that this is an awkward situation i have no idea what to do and then she disappeared out of the elevator before i could have a next thought um but we worked on exhibition merchandise for everything from the very um, popular exhibition. Um, oh, it was the one that lined throughout the door and around the Alexander McQueen exhibition. That was like the biggest. It was that was almost a financial burden that we had to face every incumbent year. And I don't know when they say success can be a, a burden. That might be an example, because I think we were always trying to fight to regain what we did that year, which was an impossible feet um but for about five years i would put on a shirt a suit and tie and dress shoes and pretend to be mr um fancy henry and it was this very much funny thing because i've always sort of at, even at, like it's funny because my parents were these like they're artistic and like my mom um she does these uh, oil paintings and my dad does charcoal and oil and he's oh, they have both these really uh, they have a they have a accomplished art work that they they are accomplished artists in their own right, and they also had side jobs that supported those creative endeavors. And it's funny because my college professors from Bard when they met them, my parents are like, oh, I didn't picture your parents like this at all because I never put forward like I've inherited some of their traits, but like oh, my mom worked at the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, which is like hold up henry you are talking about all sorts of not highbrow stuff all the time and also your dad's a general contractor and it's like my parents are these very we're interesting people in very different ways and so it's always so for me to finally go to the met it almost made sense in a different way even though that was also a not a real fit like just like the book publisher i was at like it's always it sort of jibes with my past my parental past but and, and was i doing it for them maybe i can never really tell i was mostly i know doing it for the resume i think pretty interesting perspective to have though to know like because i don't think a lot of people who have come on this podcast have talked as openly about what their parents did i think erin did like erin talked about the fact that like her you know her dad is a lawyer or her i think maybe it's her stepdad is a lawyer and just the fact that what your parents do can definitely have an impact on what you choose to do because it's the closest thing that you have in your life that would 
dictate what you think work looks like, whether it's, I don't want to do that because my parents come home and they're miserable and they complain about how much they hate their jobs, or my parents have careers that they find to be fulfilling and they love them. And I want to do something like that. I want to have that feeling. And so therefore I think that's what work should look like. So it, it's kind of interesting that you notice that parallel, but at the same time that you understand the idea of, I want to do this cool thing because it's going to look good on my resume is definitely not a thought. I think most people have in their early twenties, like, Honestly, I don't think it even would have occurred to me until like the past three years. So that was another thing about getting out of particularly not just Bard, but the people who my friends from Bard were friends with were from all the most different walks of life. I remember trying to like find friend circles in my early 20s and like going over to places to watch football on Sundays, even though I was not. I was there more for the camaraderie than for the actual what was on the TV. And then those were with that was with lawyers and it was a very much different. It was a very odd environment to be in. But I, you, you, the, you, the people around you and their jobs and how they talk about their pride of what they do or not really, especially for, for me, had a big impact, except that my mom was surprised that it did because when I sort of started to be annoyed about life at the Met, she said, you know, I never said this when you were applying there, but it always felt weird that you actually tried to go there because I thought I complained about my job way too much for you to consider working at a museum because the, the, her job was not that perfect either a lot of the time. She had her managerial troubles. But I think part of me just says, oh, no, that's not what all museums are like. That's just like what that museum is like. I've always had a absurdly... And this is like an uh, ahead of my age concept, but like sample size is something I've thought about for my entire life. Like I can't judge something based around you can't say all tacos are bad just because you've had tacos in New York for lack of it's a really good example, actually, of why that would not work out. But um, no. So my parents were because I'm an, especially because I'm an only child, they played a huge part in what I would consider my career or professional development mostly because they were able to balance in a way having perfect um, personal creative pursuits and having real jobs um my dad's studio to this day still keeps getting new little additions charcoal drawings for the most part and um sometimes they're the street corner outside the apartment building sometimes they're portraits um and my mom i think she does most of her oil painting upstate um, but she also, it's not the same thing or not seen as the same thing by culture, I think, because of some gender norms, but she takes a lot of pride in the garden that she has. And they have a little house in upstate New York and she maintains that like it's like some people really love Stardew Valley. That's her Stardew Valley. Like that's a real <laughs> place that she has a lot of emotional uh, creative fulfillment in because she just has curated this little garden for more than my entire life and i sort of um, admired that as like i don't know if i've ever for my i couldn't keep up something for my entire life except for my own body which well my my success could that can be arguable but um no it's real she they are really important people to my creative uh, development and that's sort of because i moved back in because my greenpoint landlord tried to raise my rent to a point where i didn't wasn't comfortable 
And then I was like, okay, I need to look for a new place. I had trouble because New York real estate is terrible. So my mom's like, you know, your childhood bedroom's just the way you left it. And I said, we get along so well right now. Why would you ruin that? And then she let me think on it. And I moved back in. And I'm not trying to just like completely derail what I was going from before this, but that was a big part of why everything that comes next was possible was because they let me move back in and I swallowed my pride or whatever about the stereotype of the millennial. I'm on the older side of being a millennial, but through most of the definitions, I still am one um, who moves back in with their parents and having that ability to move past that concern enables so much of my career. And that's why I'm so fortunate to have my parents as a part of my life. So what happened after the Red Wedding of the Metropolitan Museum of Art? So um, I I was 29. I was looking for something new to do. I even considered coding at one point. Talked to a friend of mine who was in web development and he was nice enough to take me out for breakfast. Well, I took him out for breakfast, but like we went out and had a conversation. He gave me advice on what to do and I could tell that this was not for me. And then more and more people, a couple people I knew in the publishing industry, one of whom works at works worked at Pitchfork and still does, she said, you're never gonna have this little responsibility in your life. Like you're single, you don't have to pay all of the rent right now. You, you've been writing freelance for all this time because that website I told, mentioned earlier, I'm still writing there. I'm occasionally still writing at other publications and I'm doing freelance for, well, part of my job at the Met I'm still able to do that work on my own. So I was able to sort of back float and then just pursue writing. And then that summer, I wrote one article blog post on Medium about whatever the topic of the day was, mostly around culture and technology. And I just kept doing one article of significant-ish length a day until that sort of felt like it had run its course and I had gotten a freelance gig. That was more of a full-time freelance gig. And that was at a place called Tech Radar Pro, where I had a really weird first assignment, which was review this off, uh, no, review this teleconferencing software. Go to meeting, which companies used to have meetings. I had to review it. And I'm a guy in an apartment. Like, well, how do I? I think my mom was nice enough to install on her computer and we did a, try, a test. And I was like reviewing software that I had never had any communication with before. And then, I did a couple more projects, like a 70 pound office burner. And I only got that job because I reached out to somebody who I knew in college. His name was Juan Martinez. And um, he was at this website, Tech Radar Pro. And, I, and we had beers one day. And the running theme here is the people in my life have always been important to me, but also very, very generous with their time and their thoughts and sharing insight and giving me a chance. And it's why I'm so very much obsessed with saying thank you and apologizing profusely, even though like it's, wait, why are you, you're not Canadian or British. Why are you apologizing so much? You're a New Yorker. Uh, it, I, I, I'm, if I'm apologizing this, this much and I'm a New Yorker, like something must've been switched at birth. Like it doesn't really make that much sense, but I got that job through Juan. And I'm eternally thankful. And then a few more assignments later that all didn't were good work, but they all never really clicked. I interviewed at this uh, website called Tom's Guide and its sister site, Laptop Mag. And they actually took a risk on little barely proven me because I had the enthusiasm. 
and that's always been the other thing aside from my appreciation of my parents the one thing i've always i think i've had in my favor is this unbridled joy or energy when it's not joy because it's often not joy um but yeah i had the energy and the uh, the passion for it hell that was the first domain and the first domain name i ever registered was the passion.com it's a tumblr blog i did um so I had the passion for it and I like they took a chance on me and I started writing out laptops for a living and other stuff like security online. Okay, I have a lot of questions now. One of the things that you mentioned that again I don't think is and when I say that people haven't talked about it on the podcast, I I mean very literally that. I'm I don't ever want anyone who's listening to one of the episodes beyond the episode that they recorded with me that I am insinuating that it's not true of them. It's just not something that we talked about. Um, but you have brought up asking other people for guidance, advice, just to sit down to pick their brain. That is a very difficult part of the career building, job hunting process that I think a lot of people don't know how to navigate. And the pressure and anxiety around asking people for help is debilitating and it stops them from reaching out to their friends and asking for help. So can you talk a little bit about how you decided to go about that? Did someone tell you to do that or did you just do it? I don't remember anybody ever telling me to do it like this, but a lot of it happened naturally because of where else? Twitter. Um, so tech journalism for me was a huge part of what I was um, when I wasn't really giving my first two jobs my all, uh, when I was doing with reading articles on a three or four tech websites, and I was just like practically at the point of, of wanting to print stuff out and read it in my free time. Like it was, I should have known something even back then. And then I would, I would just become, there are a few writers who I became so like enamored with their writing is a very uh, almost slight way of putting it because I'd also listen to their podcasts and I would reply to them. On, I would at them on Twitter and ask questions. And like these people were, I think, especially back in the late early odds, it was before it was back when Twitter was a place where it was a lot less dense and a lot more, Oh, this is, it's like the relaxed college party at senior year versus like the freshman year party where it's everybody crowding into one gymnasium. In the early days of Twitter it was like, oh, I could actually reach out to my favorite tech writer in the world and eventually be asking them questions about working in this industry in their direct in their DMs. And then one of them, Christina Warren, who um, was at Mashable at the time, and she would appear on a few podcasts I listened to. She was always very generous with uh, just answering questions and i was always like these people everything they wrote everything they did was just catnip to me and i just wanted to know more and learn more and i was i mean fear and panic about approaching people you idolize is definitely real yet i don't know how to explain how i overcame that because lord knows i can't overcome fear in like yeah, someday I'll open, I'll create a new dating profile again. That'll happen someday, I promise you. <laughs> but like at that point, I don't know why it wasn't that way for me with job stuff, except to say the old classic phrase: "I had the confidence of a mediocre white man," and like that can get people very far in life if they push themselves. 
and I did, and I um, ended up uh, it was during the summer of working and my freelancing and trying to just get my whip my own writing into shape. Um, Christina actually gave me a lunch meeting or a coffee meeting at um, right across the street from her old office, and it was like that moment of being treated like I was worth somebody's time for a coffee was it gave me all the pride in the world and enough gas in my tank to really face the empty days as if I had a, a future that the current moment didn't suggest I did. Um, I think back to that Gregory's coffee pretty frequently, actually, um, because if I when I get the chance to help people or give anybody advice, I take pride in that because I have to do that because that was given to me. Um, I'm not in the position to do that that often, but it, that coffee and other times when people, um, one uh, a sort of acquaintance who was writing for a bunch of blogs back in the day, met me at a dive bar and gave me advice about writing online. And it was just like the city was this sort of slow swarm of people who wanted to help each other out at least. And it was also a way to like make connections for the future, I would imagine. Like when people help people out who are younger than them, it's probably part about their own want to do the right thing, but also, hey, that person might be a very valuable personal, a professional connection someday in the future. Um, I've been able to survive long enough into this industry where I'm not, like I'm now in sort of a position to maybe assign freelance work. So, I can see the both um, uh, selfless and selfish reasons to do this. And, um, but nobody ever suggested reach out to people, not that I can remember. Um, it was always weird to my parents that I would meet people from the internet. That was the most foreign con. I mean, no, the most foreign concept to them, it's a tie between the fact that I enjoy doing karaoke and I like um, oysters. They both don't understand either of those two things being real about anybody related to them. But um, no, they're, they were, they, I think they were always impressed by how extroverted I was as an adult because when I was a kid, I was indoor kid latchkey kid like very much turn on the tv or computer and close myself up from the world so that i've been able to do this as i get older i guess it's the value of technology enabling people to be social which hey didn't isn't that where we met on the internet i mean yeah possibly i don't i really have no recollection of that and can't speak to it whatsoever so what is your job like now? Um, I am still at Tom's Guide, and now I am an editor. That was a change that happened in this past January, and that was last month. Uh, oh, January 2020, if aliens are, are going over this uh, audio footage in the future, January 2020 was like a year to live through. And um, <laughs> that's why I talk about it like it was forever ago. But it's just February 5th today. And um, and now I've been help. I've been actually sort of somebody's not boss, but like I now have a staff writer who is working in my category. Where like I've gone from writing on laptops to sort of writing on laptops sometimes, but mostly writing about the world of streaming media. Which going back to the whole New York Times thing, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like yesterday, I was at a press junket and I interviewed the cast of the new show Mythic Quest, the Apple TV show that's from Rob McElhaney and Charlie Day. And at that panel were uh, Rob McElhaney, F. Murray Abraham and Danny Pudi of Community. So 
it was I've now gotten to a point where I actually am writing about culture for a living, but also about like the ins and outs of the streaming networks and apps. So it's like that technology and culture line sort of blurred and blurred and blurred. And now it's my actual day job. Do you have goals set for the future? This industry is so and messy isn't the right word, but it wouldn't be a wrong word. Um, this industry is so turbulent and chaotic that I'm not one to predict where it will be in four years. The fact that I will have been here for, I think, four or five years at this point, at the end of April, is remarkable to me because nobody, nobody in this industry, save for a couple of people I work with, has stayed with a company for that long. Um, I hope to still be creating and writing on the internet in five or ten years i hope that's still a thing um i think the more you cover ai and artificial intelligence the more you panic about the longevity of anything you do because of what happens when a robot can live blog an apple event what happens when the technology gets away from us like there's a lot of like oh artificial intelligence kills human stuff to worry about but it's the more pressing concern is when does it become more financially resp um, responsible for a uh, c-level executive to say oh we're going to try uh, automating your job and that was something that for a while we just thought would happen in the automotive industry but the more i think the more people think about it these days the more they think any job could be you have to make your and that's you have to make yourself as creative as possible because that makes you as indispensable as possible the more ideas i can come up with at this job and the more cross sections of the teams that i can work with the more i think there's actually a future here because it's i mean like writing on the internet is the weirdest thing right now where this industry is in a unionization boom um companies are getting bought or dying left and right um like i hope to be happy in five or ten years with what i'm doing i don't know what that will i assume it will be writing i i've done this weird zigzag thing since 2006 and it's 2010 now and that's in 40 14 years i've gone no no henry it's 2020 now <laughs> sorry yeah <laughs> what did i say 2010 okay yeah from 2006 to 2020 14 years i've gone from a book publisher making coffee table books and calendars to a museum a pretty big museum making paper products and even at one point external uh, little flash drives uh, designed out of like objects in the museum to writing online media and then that, if that's not a ziggurat like is that's not like uh weird it's not even an ouroboros but like that's the most unpredictable trajectory ever but then because i'm you know i said like oh you have your side you have your day job to pay the bills you have your side hustle to actually make everything tolerable well during the middle of this run when i was at tom's guide i started to do the one thing left in my weird oh i have a new creative itch to scratch I'm going to write about pro wrestling. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> and I'm hitting more writer's block now than ever. Um, writing about my favorite matches of 2019 was the, somehow surprisingly not that easy thing to do. I was sort of, when I made my list, I felt like I was grasping at straws. But I still do stuff for Cage Side. 
Um, I wish I was doing more, but the time in the day is not there as much because my day job is now bleeding over into my nighttime. Um, but I, I was, uh, as I think many people are, a fan first and a writer second. And then uh, there was a guy who let me interview him, and that sort of let me get a chance to do the wrestling writing thing. Because I was, one day, CM Punk got his ass kicked in UFC. Um, and Cage side needed some extra writing that weekend. So I wrote about it. Then uh, it tapered off. Then Keith Lee got signed to WWE and I had been yelling his name in the front row of every show I was able to attend. So when I asked him, remember how I said the bizarre confidence of a mediocre white man? <laughs> um, yeah, I had the gall to walk up to a pro wrestler and say, I don't know if you even know if you could do this, um, but I've been sort of writing about pro wrestling. I can send you links to what I've been doing. Um, would you in any way be, could I interview you? And he paused and he thought, and he goes, I'm not sure. Um, and he gave me his email address and he found out later that he could. So I sent him a list of questions and he answered them. And I turned that into like a profile because I didn't remember how I'm really hoping that people will give me their time. The last thing I'm willing to believe is that they'll give me that time in real time. So a lot of the time what I do is I send some, I pen people a laundry list of questions that could cover every angle that I could turn into a paragraph. And then I create something out of that. Um, mostly because we finding time to do anything is impossible anymore. Like I have to write about pop culture now. A lot of that is recommending TV shows and movies. I hate telling somebody you need to watch this or you should watch like, People have their own time in lives. I can't like try to say, no, your life will be incomplete if you don't watch The Good Place. <laughs> Hint, it might be. But the thing is, the thing is, it's not, we have so little spare time anymore because of everybody's day jobs and side jobs. And so I just let people, if they're willing to do, if they're willing to participate with what my little crazy idea is, they... I asked and he said yes and so I just gave him this questionnaire I turned it into a profile and then that turned out to go over that was appreciated I think by people like that and then a while later I did the same with um, Jim Smallman Never heard and of he uh, I don't know where he is now I think he's in an orphanage in Mexico oh, um, he must know um, El Generico then I think they're now like well, they're not drinking buddies because that doesn't happen, but like they must be <laughs> hanging out. Um, but so, yeah, no, it, he it was, again, another person who I had the, the dumb confidence to ask for help. And that's the running theme in my life is that I know that I'm not going to be able to do it all by myself. I try sometimes and it doesn't go that well to like, oh, I'm, I can do five articles for this weekend. And then that has me up late one night or staying, getting in early. And like, I'm always willing to take on too much responsibility. It's again, I don't know why, but I just feel like the need to over help because I feel like I'm so, so fortunate. But so these two guys really bolstered my self-confidence and whatever about giving me those chances so now i am a semi like i do six or so hopefully articles per month about pro wrestling at cage side seats and i can often pitch my own topic um recently i wrote about how basically a 
smallish list of frustrations with it evolve wrestling and it's which is unfortunate because that's the uh primary wrestling i see live anymore so if i'm uh, if i'm annoyed about it to the point where i want to blog about it i should do it because that's going to be interesting but at the same time oh boy uh, the next show it's gonna be fun to show up there and be like hi everybody um nobody knows who i am though that's a good thing about um not being actually i'm like yeah who knows who that kid is um but like th those i've been able to do remember i said i was like the whole obsession is being creative like that's the whole make myself indispensable sort of thing is a phrase you see thrown around a lot now um wrestling writing can be really not good it can be really boring and really groaning and eye rolling and it's a lot of times it's very much ouroboros uh oriented in terms of where ideas come from um but at the same time i wanted to do something that was different so i think my favorite thing i've ever done there was i asked three different people in the industry to talk about the most mysterious man in the industry and i got to do a thing called the oral history of orange cassidy and it was because dan barry chuck taylor and bryce remsburg all were willing to answer a questionnaire because if you've ever seen those articles in GQ, it's like the oral history of Cheers. It's the 30th anniversary. We asked the cast a bunch of questions. I did that, but for this professional wrestler who wears acid wash denim. And now that guy's on cable and that article is probably more meaningful because he's now this like kid, little children go to him for Halloween. And it's all because like I, I was had the confidence to ask people for help. And that's, I, I knew like I couldn't do that article on my own but i had the idea of questions that would be weird like what's um have you like what's in his bag or like what is like a little weird little things that would get like them to make up stuff that would be funny and that was the whole like trying to breathe a sense of humor or something something not trying to break the tropes of wherever i am is a huge part of how I feel like I can make it actually, I can not be as easily replaced. I mean, that's pretty great. And also makes me happy because writing about wrestling very nearly made me stop being involved with wrestling entirely. So I'm really glad that you have such a positive, you are just such a positive person. It's alarming, actually. It's my best secret cap. I'm always, no, I'm not always positive, but no, I, it's, it's a very, it's tough and it takes a lot of effort to be positive, but if you, and I'm very, I'm very often we ready to talk shit about whatever the topic of the day is. And I'm like, I will, but at the same time, when you're giving me this chance to talk about where I've gone and how fortunate and I, I can't not sit back and think, man, I am I don't like to use the word lucky. I like to use the word fortunate. I think luck suggests some sort of magic or I don't know. Um, I'm fortunate to have the people in my life that I did. And I can't act as if nobody does anything. Like maybe I can write a blog post on my own, but I can't get a job writing blog posts on my own because somebody has to pay me. Like somebody has to do the finance. And if none of us can are an island into ourselves, like, and we all feel, and if some of us feel fortunate to where we get where we go, there has to be some sort of thank you and hug and look back to the people that, like the friend who you get to talk to on text and like give you a moment to vent to them. And that's these are the people in your life are you're. I think we're all lucky, at least those of us who have people we can talk to. 
I am never going to feel like I can't stop saying thank you or I'm sorry because some people don't have anybody. Um, my current preoccupation is the probably international homeless problem in the world. Um, every city I go to has a different variety, variety of it. But no matter where I go, Austin, New York, England, I don't not see homelessness wherever, practically wherever I go. And it's become my new itch in the back of my head. But it, always, but it always reminds me that I, if a different centimeter was different, who knows what life I'm born into. So I feel very fortunate to have the situation I have. And that's why when you give me a chance to think about 35 plus years, I can't not want to like go home and hug my parents tonight. What do you think you would like? Because I feel like you just kind of said it, but maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something else as well. What would you like someone who's listening to this podcast right now to take away from it? I would want them to try different things before anything. Um, some people I know feel a futility in life, and I try my best to talk some confidence into them. And it's because of how difficult everything may be for them in the current moment. It might be it, me trying to talk positivity might be like somebody yelling at a flower wanting it to blossom. Like it's not just because I've said something doesn't mean it's going to be easy or like it took me a whole summer of writing on medium.com for other people, not any profit for myself. I was just building a resume of online writing once a day to show I could do the work. I was like, if you're not there yet with your resume, like you might need to, I hate the phrase writing for exposure. And like a lot of people don't have the time to do anything, but trying things and not feeling like things are hopeless or pointless. And I always feel apologetic. And like whenever people or like when if I'm asking for help, I always like, I'm so sorry to bother you. I'm, I really will. Uh, I will couch everything I ever ask of people in thank yous and thank yous. Um, but I want people to reach out and ask for help. I want people to know that it makes other people feel really, it gives you a confidence when somebody asks you for help, because that means they see you as somebody who actually could provide them with something important. Like a lot of times we all live in our own little silos and I'm not saying that because I'm in a phone booth right now, but it does feel like <laughs> kind of thematically on point. And that a lot of people that some people I know even just feel helplessly alone, even if they're around their friends every so often. And I want those people to know that as much pain or as much trouble as the moment currently could have with the, with enough attempts and different, it, don't try the same thing. Don't hit the wall over and over again. Don't wily coyote yourself into misery. But like, if you just try, if you keep trying, I, I believe that most people who who at least are out there listening to people talk about their careers, because you're listening to this podcast right now for at least one of two reasons. One, you're a friend of Jay's and well, OK, you've gotten already you've got a little increase in my estimation of you in points in that regard. Or you're, you're you stumbled into your podcast search and like you're looking for um, people like talking about job advice and life and career stuff and if you're looking, if you're doing that much to think outside of your own little silo and you're thinking about what can I learn from people who have found some success in their careers, 
know that you have enough drive and initiative to do another thing that's not comfortable, to risk rejection again and again. And I that sounds terrible. Two rejections alone in different fields when you're trying something new and you're putting your own heart, like dating and job hunting are the exact same thing in the worst ways. Sometimes you don't know what the other person's going through. You have no, you only see your side of the phone and you have to, you could assume anything about what their, what your interviewer or potential person you're dating is living through, but you have to just forget the even you can't you have to like uh, you of course you have to think about what their life is like but you can't assume anything you have to give them the benefit of the doubt and you have to just hope that if you're honest enough and you are earnest enough and you try and you give it your full learn from me don't self-sabotage try to avoid self-sabotage as often as possible but um if you can just try to not be afraid and just accept that asking for help and trying new things like i've gone in different directions and i finally stumbled across something that actually works and i was 30 when that happened i turned 30 before my big full-time job in online writing i was i was we had my 35th my 30th birthday party with my friends from college and i was not where i wanted to be in life i was sort of in a rut and they were all either in relationships or at dream jobs. And I wasn't neither. And I was 30 and that felt really numbers and the mind are really screwed up. Like I only am starting to get my body into shape because when I turned 35, I had a emotional con uh, push to myself to change my habits. Um, but if you tr put, if you give yourself an effort, if you try and fight for yourself and f try to break through, I don't know what you're, if you're working in a place you don't like now or in a situation you don't right now, the worst thing you could do is just stay in stasis and not use your spare time to scratch your creative itches, not use any friends you have who have interesting jobs to ask what their life is like over there and what they like and don't like about their jobs or what would it need, what would, if you like what they do or you have an interest, ask them what it, what it requires to break into that industry. There's always a front door. People always need help wherever. Unfortunately, it might not be the job you're looking for. You might have to, I know somebody who is a tech writer now who started as a community uh, person working in forums, and that was not what he wanted to do at all. He got out of it, though. He was at the company and he passed his he applied for a job on a different team and now he's an editor too on a different site here like people if they don't their emotions get the like overwhelm them you can you can have a pretty good chance of getting to where not maybe not where you think you want to be but at least a different or better place than you are now that's what i would want people to take away is not giving up I mean, I feel compelled to end the podcast there because that's a pretty good place to end on. Henry, where can people find you on the internet should you choose to be found? Well, that's the thing about me. I've used the same three, well, two names and one initial to be incredibly SEO friendly. Um, the Henry T. Casey, H-E-N-R-Y-T-C-A-S-E-Y, in any website, anything, I am probably there except for Facebook. Um, because I had a bug in my craw about uh, they're lying about video numbers. 
um so i canceled my account and i've ruined i i think i've lost some i would call them acquaintances because of that but um I'm there at henrytkc.com, at henrytkc on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and everything else. Um, and then by day, tomsguide.com, T-O-M-S-G-U-I-D-E.com. And on occasion, cagesideseats.com. And we didn't even get into it, but a little micro story. Uh, a rarely recording pro wrestling podcast called The Ring Post. Um, one of my favorite people in podcasting is this guy, Mike Hurley, M-Y-K-E. I Mike, I-M-Y-K-E on Twitter. Um, he was this technology podcaster who struck out of a job in advertising in England and now own, co-owns and co-founded a podcast network about technology in Apple. And then I found out one day that he liked wrestling. And I thought to myself, I want to do a wrestling podcast with Mike and we've done a good handful, maybe a little bit more than a good handful of episodes, but our schedules are incredibly increasingly impossible to wrangle. But I do a show with him and Dave Tack, who is a guides editor at Polygon. And we try to be positive about pro wrestling, which this sentence is much sounds much harder than and much harder than it sounds, at least for people who are outside of wrestling. Um, but I got to, because of just, responding to people and reaching out to them and asking and offering my help and saying i would do a show with you if i got the chance and then eventually he wanted to and then i've met him and we've hung out and we've gone to i think yeah we, i went with him to progress hello wembley like um i have been i've like i've ho i've hung out with him in new york and england and no it's i do this thing called the ring post and that's another case of ask people it hurts to when you get a no you get a lot of no's, but they're not always going to be no's. Some of them will be yeses, and it might be the people who you really want to say yes that will say yes. It is only fitting that I express my gratitude to Henry for saying yes to coming on this podcast. It's fun to interview people I don't know, like last week's awesome chat with Aisha, but it's equally as incredible when I get to speak to someone I do know, someone who's already my friend, and really learn something about them, and even something from them. In honor of that, I'd like to take a quick minute to thank everyone who has been on and will be on this podcast, everyone who supported me when I decided to try this weird and wonderful project out, and every one of you who listens, even if it's just to this one episode. If you are listening and you'd like to suggest someone for me to have on the podcast, or maybe you want to come on yourself, you can find me on Twitter at TheLadyJSays and on Instagram at TheLadyJSlays. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. And there are some real doozies coming. Until next time, thanks everyone. Bye.